Good morning. Uh, Please open with me to Genesis chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to be reading this morning. Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife? Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me, Because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's holy and living and active word, inerrant and perfect. Let us ask him now for his grace and helping us to understand it. Lord, we do thank you for your good word. It is a light unto our path. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and by it able to pierce down into the depths of our own hearts, convicting us of sin, instilling with us and encouraging us in faith. Through it, we are encouraged, rebuked, lifted up, strengthened. Father, we pray that your word, by your spirit, would do its work in our lives now. Father, have your way with us. Help us to submit to your will. Help us to know your word and your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the Apostle Paul writes about the life of Abraham, looking back on this great man of faith, he tells us in Romans chapter 4 this remarkable truth, this kind of axiom which marked the entirety of Abraham's faith. Paul says in Romans 4.20 that Abram's faith grew strong as he gave glory to God. Paul understood the nature of faith, that faith is not this kind of static, unchanging reality, but rather faith is something that can grow, that can strengthen, or conversely, is something that can weaken and diminish. Abraham's faith grew only in accordance with how his life gave glory to God. Last week, we saw Abram's response to God's call, right? An effectual God 
uh, an effectual call by God that brought about this response of faith in Abram. Abram left the land of his fathers and, and went to a land that God promised would belong to his descendants. Indeed, the very fact that Abram would have descendants was a part of God's amazing promise. But we read in chapter 12 that this land which God had brought Abram to, well, immediately in our text this morning, was a land apparently in the midst of a severe famine. It's beginning, at least, to inflict the land. Have you ever experienced a real famine? Thought about that this week. It's not something I think I can really wrap my mind around. I read a news article that was sent to me earlier uh, last week about um, a famine taking place in Somalia right now. And it went through a number of stories kind of explaining the results of this famine in Somalia. And one of the stories recounted the life of a young mother, Saray. Saray had seven children. Uh, she was apparently a single mother, or there was no mention of her husband, no father in the picture. And in order to escape the effects of the famine, she and her seven children had to trek across Somalia to the kind of next largest town, which was days away. And on her trek, day after day, each of her child children died. Until so she finally showed up at the town, and, um, and her youngest child uh, was dead in her arms as she was trying to nurse him to life. And you, you read something like this. You read the life of Saray, and you say, I, I just I can't imagine. It's just a, 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 a something I, I've never experienced, a severe famine of this magnitude. That's the picture I think that we need to see when we step into the second half of Genesis chapter 12. What do you think was going through Abram's mind at this point? God, I've, I've followed you here. This is not what I had in mind when you said I would give you a land. I responded in faith, but now you're giving me famine? But of course, Abram didn't have the New Testament. And so perhaps we can excuse him for not knowing that famine often follows faith. Faith is always tested. And so Abram, as he was comfortably worshiping in this new land, God decides to test him. A famine now decimates the land. And verse 10 tells us the the famine was severe in the land. The epistle written by James would have been appropriate here, I think, where James writes to those who, like Abram, have put their faith in God, have decided to follow God's call for their life. James writes... Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here, evidently, was a trial, a test which was meant to produce steadfastness within this man of God. Was Abram aware that following God, trusting in God, was not going to be a walk in the park? Something more akin to, to rafting the white waters of the Colorado River. This is so characteristic of God's ways with us, I think. God tests his believers. Time and time again, we're reminded that the, that the promise of rest, the promise of glory, only comes through suffering. Romans 8.17 
We are children of God, says Paul. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we might be glorified with Him. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 4? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our lives. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our lives. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul concludes by saying, for this momentary, light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, glory beyond all comparison. This is Christianity 101. God tests believers to produce within them steadfastness and a strengthened faith. And here we see God test Abram. There's a famine in the land. So how does Abram respond? Well, from one perspective, we could say that Abram did the natural thing. He got up, he left, and he pursued a place where where things were not so famished. But therein lies the problem, doesn't it? There's no mention at all, is there, of Abram seeking the Lord in this. He only did the natural thing. What does James 1 tell us? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Then he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. Go to God. Pray to God for wisdom. And he'll give generously to all who go to him. And let him ask in faith. Abram doesn't do that. And it's not so much that Abram denied God. No, it's that he temporarily forgot God. God just wasn't on his radar. Famine? Well, I'll go somewhere else. No, in the face of this test, he forgets about the promise of God to bless him in the land and seeks out instead another land where he can find what he thinks is the blessed life. The Egyptians are living it up. Let's go down there for a little bit. Verse 10. Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, think about this for a moment. How would have the first readers of Genesis reacted when they read that Abram decided to go down to Egypt? They would have said, no, Abraham, no, not there. You'll end up in bondage there. You can't just go to Egypt and then get out. And they would have been right, wouldn't they? Because that's exactly what happens. He escapes the danger of famine only to exchange it for the danger of Egypt. He jumps out of the frying pan into the fire from famine to Pharaoh. And here's the crazy thing for me, at least as I think about the story. I think a strong faith would have responded this way. God has promised me life and descendants and blessings here in Canaan. There's a famine in Canaan. Famines kill people. But God has promised that my descendants will inherit this land. I don't have any descendants yet. So it stands to reason that this famine will not kill me. Because God will keep his promises. Famines are not stronger than God. Famines are not outside the sovereign purposes of God. No, 
I will trust God and at least see how God leads me in and through this trial. Lord God, make your name great as you showcase your faithfulness through this difficult time. But Abram doesn't respond like that. He exchanges faith for flight and escapes the danger through his own deceit. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This plan may say a lot about Egypt and what was culturally expected there, but it says a lot more about Abraham, doesn't it? Sarai was apparently a really beautiful woman. She's 65 years old. Remember, Sarah will live to be 127, so she's like in her midlife prime right now. Her 60s is like our 30s. Uh, Here she is, a woman of eye-stopping beauty. And so Abram was well aware of what that might mean for him and his family in an ungodly world. This deception actually wasn't new to Abram. We'll read later in chapter 20, verse 13, uh, that as soon as Abram actually had left Haran, he said to Sarai back, back then, at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So now as they prepare to enter into Egypt, Abram employs the same lie again. And again, I can't help but consider the unreasonableness of his unbelief. Faith should have responded thus. God has promised me an heir through Sarai, my wife. I do not yet have a child. And since God has made the promise, the promise must be fulfilled. Therefore, no harm will come to me. Men will not kill me because God has made a covenant promise. Friends, there is a logical and reasonable response, a a flower of faith that blooms out of the soil of God's promises. One of my favorite books uh, comes from an old Dutch Puritan named Wilhelmus Abrakel, wrote this massive four-volume theology, and he entitled it, The Christian's Reasonable Service. And he took his title from Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. He was trying to communicate the truth that worshiping God in every area of life is the most reasonable thing we could do if we really do believe in God and what God has promised to us. Faith and and reason are not contradictory truths. True faith is a reasonable faith, and right reasoning comes from true belief. Here in this moment, Abram acts unreasonably because his faith is faltering in the face of this test. Again, as Paul wrote in Romans 4, Abram's faith grew strong in accordance to how he gave glory to God. In this account, Abram does not glorify God. And we we see his faith weakening. God was not in the driver's seat behind Abram's decision-making. Abram was, and it shows. The story climaxes, doesn't it, in verses 14 through 16. It's as if the, the, the worst thing possible that could happen did happen. A situation where Abram, he couldn't maneuver and lie his way out of this. When Abram entered Egypt... The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. So yeah, perhaps the average Egyptian would have tried to approach Abram first, asking for his sister's hand in marriage. Abram could have, you know, heed and hawed and ultimately sent the Egyptian away. No, 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 I'm not giving up my sister. But he couldn't do that with Pharaoh. <laughs> Look at verse 16. The language used there is the exact same language used of how the sons of God took for themselves daughters from men. It's the exact same language used of how Eve saw the fruit and took it and ate it. Pharaoh saw beautiful Sarai and he took her. And there was nothing anybody, Sarai or Abram, could do about it. Don't neglect to see here the decline in Abram's situation. God tests Abram with a trial, and instead of praying for wisdom and for God's guiding, sustaining grace, he instead trusts in his own understanding. This is disobedience, which leads him into danger, and the danger leads him into deceit, and his deceit leads him into a place of despair. His wife has now been taken into Pharaoh's harem. What's happening behind the closed doors of Pharaoh's palace? How far is Pharaoh gone? What's running through Abram's mind right now? What's running through Sarai's mind right now? You see, in the, in the midst of trials, when we choose the path of disobedience, we inevitably end up in situations that are dark and despairing. It's a path that leads to death. James 1 again tells us, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. But in that trial, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What Abram didn't do was trust in the Lord with his heart. No, instead he leaned on his own understanding and in all his ways he failed to submit to God. Consider Abram's current situation in light of the promise God had just made earlier in chapter 12. God had just promised Abram land and lineage, right? A a, a place and a people. And, and, And these people would dwell in God's land. But now both of these promises are seemingly in complete jeopardy. They're out of the land. Sarai locked away in Pharaoh's palace. And Sarai, is, has she slept with Pharaoh yet? You don't know. But the very fact, this very act, puts the promise of a people coming from Abram through her in jeopardy. It's here in this darkest place where we see highlighted Abram's unfaithful decisions. But it's also in this dark place darkest part of the account where we see verse 17 break in with the light of God's sovereign hand. Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then here's your wife, take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away. God, in his mercy, comes and through this judgment upon Pharaoh's household, brings release and deliverance. The Hebrew stresses here the severity of the plagues. They were great plagues. 
so that Pharaoh's whole household was completely overwhelmed by them. But it seems that Sarai was untouched. I think we would be poor readers of this text if we didn't see the glaring pattern jumping out of us in this text. Do you see it? Always trying to keep our minds uh, on the original readers of Genesis who would uh, uh, Moses have given this book to, those men and women who just came out of the Exodus and were poised to enter into the land of Canaan. Would they have seen any parallels and patterns in the story with their own story? Absolutely. Due to famine, Abram goes to Egypt. Just like later, due to famine, Israel, also known as Jacob, will go down to Egypt. Sarai becomes enslaved under Pharaoh. The Jews will become enslaved under Pharaoh. In both accounts, God sends plagues to deliver. And in both accounts, God's people are unharmed by the plagues. And just like the Jews, when they leave Egypt, they would leave with a lot of treasure and money from Egypt. But did you notice verse 16? And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, many sheep and oxen, male donkeys, and so on. These gifts from Pharaoh, they're significant gifts. The female donkeys Abram got would be like getting a BMW or a Mercedes-Benz today. Uh, The camels, which are like brand new uh, to that society as like newly domesticated animals, that would have been like getting a Lamborghini or a Maybach. Uh, uh, These are not insignificant gifts. And when Pharaoh sends Abram and Sarah away, they take with them back to Canaan all these gifts. Friends, even in the midst of a totally messed up situation, a situation caused by Abram's sin, God is still able to bring good out of evil. God's covenant promises continue even through Abram's crookedness. But make no mistake about it. Abram will leave a scarred man. I don't know how long a journey it is from Egypt to Canaan by donkey. I imagine it it takes quite a few days. Do you think Abram and Sarai talked joyfully on their way back on that trip? Uh, Like, can you imagine the kind of counseling that needed to go on between these two after this Egypt incident? Abram leaves Egypt a scarred man. And even after we see the scar, this wound, this, this, this scab of Abram's open back up over and over again, and the, the people of God will keep going back to Egypt. Even after the Exodus, what do we hear the Israelites say and they're complaining as they wander in the wilderness? Well, let's go back to Egypt where the food was good. So too in the days of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he preaches to the people, don't go to Egypt, go to God. Will read for us Isaiah 31. Don't trust in Egypt. Trust in God. Don't go to the place where all your material needs will be satisfied if it means taking one single step outside of the revealed will of your covenant God. Don't do it. And here's Abram being confronted by pagan Pharaoh. And it's so ironic. Pharaoh seems to be the better man here, doesn't he? Pagan Pharaoh is looking at Abram, the man of faith, a follower of God, and saying, what have you done? Why did you lie about your wife? Did you notice the words from Pharaoh at the end of chapter 12, which so ironically echo the words at the beginning of chapter 12? At the very beginning of chapter 12, we see the Lord say to Abram, go, go to the land that I will show you. Abram hears and obeys. It's a great start. But now at the very end of this chapter, we have the same words from Pharaoh. 
but from a completely different perspective. Go, Abraham, go. Get out of my country and go back to your land. What is this you have done to me? Here's your wife. Take her and go. And Abram, silent under Pharaoh's reproach, uttering not a word, goes. I mean, what could he say? Nothing. And that's the point. Abram was meant to be a blessing to the nations. Before this event, Abram was in Canaan building altars and confessing the name of Yahweh as Keith beautifully preached last week, filling the land with the aroma of the worship of the living God. His worship was his evangelism. But now, here was Abram caught in a lie. Foolish Abram, now silent, who couldn't confess his God because in his sin he had forfeited any right to point the Egyptians to Yahweh at all. Abram would build no altars in Egypt. No, instead, verse 20 tells us that Pharaoh actually had him escorted out of the country to make sure he wouldn't come back in. Do you see this, Christians? Your life matters. Your witness means nothing. Your words fall flat if they're not backed by a life that is living consistently with how God has called you to live. Make no mistake, holiness and evangelism always go hand in hand. Abram began with great faith, but quickly failed under his trial. He did not seek God's guidance, and the result was disastrous. And yet, God not only allows Abram to fall, but mercifully, he uses it for his good. The beginning of chapter 13, we didn't read it, but it's good to read it now, tells us plainly, doesn't it? Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. We know where he got that from. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. God would bring Abram back into the land. And Abram would not ultimately stumble in his faith. God would restore him back to worship. And he brought Abram back into Canaan as a very rich man. That's no throwaway line. It will be this money which Abram will later use to buy and own the first plot of land in Canaan. In other words, God is already, even in the midst of Abram's sin, fulfilling his promises to bless Abram with a place and a people. God's Covenant promises continue even through Abram's crookedness. Friends, that's the God we worship this morning. He is always drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. And every one of us here this morning is a crooked stick. Some more crooked than others, but we're all imperfect. We're all of us sinners, broken, faithless, prone to unbelief. Left to ourselves, we would be no different than worse than Abram in the second half of Genesis 12. Perhaps you're here this morning and you find yourself aligning actually more with Pharaoh than with Abram. Whatever you see, whatever you want, you take. Like Pharaoh, you you, you follow your heart. That's what rules your life. You, You sleep with whoever you want. And if you're honest, you see Christians like Pharaoh saw Abram. It's nothing more than hypocrites and a nuisance. 
If that's you this morning, well, let me welcome you to Greenbelt Baptist Church, a congregation filled with Abrams. Ask anybody here after the service if they've sinned and acted in a way that hasn't trusted in God. And if, if they did anything this week that actually dishonored God. And they'll tell you, some of them may be behind tear-filled eyes, how often they feel more like Abram in the second half of Genesis 12 than they do like the first half of Genesis 12. But, like Abram, we also keep pressing on. We refuse to let our sins take us out. That means we repent, we get up, we give our lives to others to be held accountable. We keep holding on by faith to the promises of God. Sometimes it's fellow members holding them on to keep on holding on to the promises of God. The promise which God gave to Abram are actually fulfilled in the greater promise of Jesus Christ. Paul in Galatians 3, and Keith read this last week, makes the fantastic point that when God promised Abram descendants, which would be a blessing to the world, Paul says the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. And that word offspring refers specifically to Jesus Christ. Abram believed in that promise. He looked forward to the blessing that would come through his child, the Messiah, and so too do we. That's why we can come to church week after week after week, even after we've stumbled, even after we've fallen. Have we sinned? Absolutely. Do we have moments of weakness where our lives look like Abram here? Yes. We trust that in Jesus Christ, not only has God forgiven our sins, but that in Jesus Christ, God is still drawing straight lines with our crooked lives. Friend, if you're here this morning as someone who, like Pharaoh, wants to send Christians away, go back to your churches, keep your God to yourself, I want you to know that a greater king is calling you to come. Come to me, says Jesus Christ, and find rest in me. Come and find forgiveness in me. Come and find ultimate satisfaction in me. Find purpose in me. Find new life in me. Find everlasting joy in me. Come and find your eternal peace in me. To everyone who comes to Jesus Christ and puts their faith in them, the New Testament is clear. They're called children of Abraham. Christians are his spiritual offspring. In Christ Jesus, says Paul, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Friends, let us come to Christ this morning and partake of all that God has promised, which finds their yes and amen in Jesus Christ.